we don't name these podcasts the same name as uh, as scripts, but this week's first uh, commentary, lack of intelligence. And we, we put a question mark on it. I don't know. I don't know at this point that that question mark is really, is really necessary anymore. But of course, that was about this pullout of Afghanistan. Joe Biden came to town and, and you know, talked to the media and explained that this pullout, uh, no mistakes, no mistakes were made. He was asked by George Stephanopoulos. And of course, that was after uh, we wrote this script. Before we get too far, this is This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkula, and on this podcast, done nearly every weekend, we discuss the big stories of the week that have appeared at thisiscommonsense.org. Now, back to Paul. But now we know that uh, he's, not, he's not complaining about anything or, or, or disappointed with anything that's happened. It's just the way it was going to happen, no matter how you did it. And it's interesting because, as I point out in the script, I think we've been in Afghanistan too long. Uh, I do think we had a a justifiable reason to go to Afghanistan. Uh, the people who bombed the you know drove planes into the twin towers and into the Pentagon, uh, and because of some bravery of, uh, of regular folks into the ground in Pennsylvania, thank goodness, uh, although everybody on the plane died, so uh, they were heroes, uh, but they're no longer with us, unfortunately. Um, but so we had every reason to go there. We didn't have every reason to stay there. And I, I think people can argue that back and forth. Uh, but it, it is true that from the polling I've seen, most people think, We've been there too long and we ought to leave. But I don't think they had this in mind. And it, it's somewhat uh, baffling to think that Joe Biden and the folks around him, who, of course, you know, you could kind of see with, you know, had Trump been president, you know, he doesn't get along so well with the deep state, maybe the intelligence, there was some uh, lack of communication. He hasn't been in Washington for 50 years, being vice president or president or a senator on the Foreign Relations Committee. He might make mistakes, uh, but this is Mr. Experience. Um, and, and he's got seasoned hands around him. And yet uh, this just, just strikes me as insane the way that it has been done and what what's more his explanation of it <clears throat> i think that the the word i have in mind has you can just use the initials which are b and s it's like he comes he, he a month ago to suggest that this could be like saigon in 1975 is insane what are you talking about that's crazy um, and, and yet, uh, it turns out to be exactly like that. And then when it does turn out to be almost exactly like that, he says, we knew all along, there was no other way to do it. You couldn't leave after five years. You couldn't have left five years ago. You couldn't leave at any time. You could stay there another 10 years. You could never get out any better than this. And, <clears throat> That does not pass the smell test. Uh, now, I've, I've, I've heard, I have a friend who's, who's uh, definitely on the D side uh, who said, hey, they were people in Afghanistan were told they should get out weeks ago. And, you know, I don't doubt that maybe there was some communication. But of course, if they then listened to Joe Biden, the president of the United States, give a speech, they would have thought, well, hey, there's no big, big deal. Uh, you know, the, the Taliban isn't going to take the whole country. And of course now, um, and this isn't all in the, in the script, because of course that was Monday. It, we're, we're taping this on Friday, the 20th of, of August. And, you know, there's been, been changes, but, but he now is saying, well, everybody knew, you know, at least we thought it would last until the end of the year. Well, before this chaos in Kabul, Nobody was, you know, he didn't come out and say, hey, no problem. We've got until the end of the year. 
And when someone says, gee, I don't think it's going to all go to hell right away, it's not going to go to hell until the end of the year. Well, we're at the end of August. There's September in October and November and December. So you didn't think it was going to go to hell in, in 11 days. You thought four months. Um, but that would have been nice to communicate to people uh, or not. And see, that's part of it, too, is why are we giving dates? Why do we say, hey, at this time, you know, our troops will be leaving at 2.03 p.m. on the 20th of August. Uh, this is this is not ready for prime time. And yet, you know, a lot of the world depends on the United States. And one of the things that uh, regular readers of Common Sense will uh, will you know probably appreciate certainly uh, uh, concur. Uh, we talk a lot now about China, uh, about Taiwan, which is kind of after after the Chinese have strangled Hong Kong is kind of next on their hit list. Um, and of course, Taiwan came up again and again and again. And not so much, I think, because of withdrawing from Afghanistan, but because we withdrew like we're bumpkins and like we don't know what's going on and like we lost to the Taliban. And frankly, you know, we could send troops in and, and beat up the Taliban anytime we want. The problem is we don't have an underlying country that we can fix up and then ever seem to get out. So it seems like you take that into account and you get out in a much, much more careful way. But it, it's uh, this week, uh, the Global Times, which is uh, uh, the mouthpiece of the CCP, the Chinazi uh, government, uh, they basically said, well, hey, uh, Afghanistan's every bit as strategic as Taiwan. And, um, you know, uh, look how America just cut and run. And of course, there are huge differences between Taiwan and Afghanistan from just a strategic standpoint. Taiwan is 100 miles off the coast of China uh, is what if it was somehow taken by China, would separate Japan and South Korea from the West, the rest of Southeast Asia. It's hugely strategically important. But the biggest difference is that it's a free society. It's not a, a, you know, a land that's never really been cohesively a nation, uh, although actually before the before the uh, uh, Soviets got to Afghanistan and before we got to Afghanistan, it seemed to have a more functional government. Now, some of that was, was our, a royal family back in the, the 70s, the 60s. Uh, but but this, this geopolitical mistake nightmare uh, does have ramifications. And it seems to me that, uh, and, and I've, you know, in, in recent years, as I've started to focus more on China, because I personally see China as I believe someone would rightfully have seen Nazi Germany in 1933 and 35 and 36. I'm very concerned about China. And I have oftentimes called Taiwan the Sudetenland or compared it. Uh, to the Sudetenland, because, you know, my whole life, I've been a non-interventionist. And of course, I think when, when people have alliances, and they've got each other's back, I don't, I don't consider that intervention. I consider that working together in an alliance. And, uh, you know, when, if, if my neighbor says, hey, would you come over and help me with something? I'm not intervening. I'm helping. Uh, so uh, working together as free countries, and this is something that Chai Ing-wen, the, the president of Taiwan, called for about a year ago, that free societies should be working together. And I have been very critical of our world policeman role, where we're going to do everything for everyone, uh, because we can't fulfill it. And people are depending on us to do what we say we're gonna do. So let's not say we can do things we can't do. 
and uh, libertarians, at least libertarian party and, and people who use the, the uh, libertarian word most often, tend to be extremely non-interventionist to the extent of we ought to have no alliances. You know, there's the old line by, I believe it was uh, Washington, if not, it was Jefferson. Uh, if you go on the internet, who knows who it is, but, but it was basically um, friendship, you know, with everybody entangling alliances with no one. And, and we see World War I, where all these en entangling alliances and trees created a world war. And then we see World War II, where the lack of France and Britain coming to check uh, Germany allowed Germany to get ahead of steam up that, that was absolutely devastating to millions of people. Um, so I have become much more interested in a coalition of free countries where we are keeping people free. And, and so I'd like to see uh, us aligned and, and working with Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Australia, because frankly, if, uh, if China aggresses against Taiwan and the rest of the world, and it's really us, I mean, uh, Germany, France, England, they've all sent ships to the South China Sea. It's not just Taiwan. It's also that the China's claiming the entire South China Sea. Well, they, you know, Vietnam's there. And so is the Philippines and Indonesia and these other countries that have no ability to withstand uh, China any more than before World War II, they had the ability to withstand Imperial Japan. And, and so these countries have begun to step up against China. It's good to see, but it's the sort of thing that it, to me, it's not as sim simply as easy as we withdraw because if the US completely withdraws from Southeast Asia, uh, I think we have a world in which nobody is free for very long in Asia. And, and that's a huge problem. And I think it does come back to us at some point in the same way that uh, I think in World War II, uh, it, it, it's, it's the sort of thing where we had, we had we kind of moved sooner, it would have been better for millions of people. And, and I'm not really arguing that we should have moved before Pearl, Pearl Harbor. It's just that if you look back, uh, and, and of course, we did move in all kinds of ways. We were giving resources and other things to England and, and allies. So it's not as if we were completely, you know, we, we won't do anything. But, um, but it seems to me that strength is not a bad thing. It's not, our foreign policy has been bad and worse and terrible in all kinds of ways. We have tended to throw our weight around when we have, you know, we don't have any right because we're stronger to beat people up. That's not what the United States of America is about. It's never what the public has wanted. And I think our leaders have not been uh, very thoughtful. They've been thoughtful in terms of what would big business want to happen, but not so much what would free people want to happen. But at the same time, being weak is not helpful. For folks, uh, having China, uh, where where there is zero freedom, unless you say what the Chinese want you to say, is is a huge huge threat. And frankly, um, Russia is is not nearly as capable as China, but they have all the same bad intentions, and of course have occupied part of Ukraine. They've taken. Uh, the I'm, I'm going to say uh, 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 Crimea. I want him to say some other word, but uh, and and so you know we've got bad actors out there, and it seems to me that if we want to get to a place where we're not the world's policemen, the way to do it is not to just kind of turn over the board and and go home. The way to do it is to start to talk to other countries who also value freedom, who have the same values. And let's work together because, you know, at some point we may need them. They need us. And it seems to me that uh, my view, and, and I'm not, I'm not going to conscript anybody to, to follow uh, this view. And I don't think I have a right to somehow 
you know, take over the U.S. government and force it to do this. I think that the public ought to make the ultimate decision of what we're willing to do or not willing to do when it comes to world affairs. But I would vote for forming solid, sensible, real-world alliances with people where they put in and we put in, where we're not paying for everything and doing everything and the superpower, because superpower is a term I hate. It's, it's a lie. We're no superpower. We're not supermen. And the more we pretend that we are, the more we get ourselves in trouble. And frankly, the more we get other people in trouble because they're depending on us to do stuff that we maybe don't intend to do. And so I'm, I am looking for the U.S. to radically change its, its foreign policy in the sense of real uh, agreements with other people, real alliances. And having allies is not so when we do something, we can, you know, create a letterhead. You know, here's all the countries that are on board. It's to actually work with them and figure out in their region, what's the best way to keep open navigation of the seas? That's in everybody's interest. So I went on a, a long uh, little uh, jaunt here that's not all in this piece, but I encourage you to go to thisiscommonsense.org. It's called The Lack of Intelligence. And it just suggests that uh, we have screwed up the withdrawal from Afghanistan and that we ought to recognize that the biggest problem with what we're trying to do in Afghanistan is that we don't have a free society that we're trying to protect. We have a society that's not free, that doesn't seem to have the building blocks for that. And that's been a real problem. And, and we need to be aware of, of that. And when you think about other places, I think we ought to not defend dictators, whether it's in the Middle East or in Asia or in Europe or anywhere else. And we ought to be working with free countries to work together and in a real way together, which will be cheaper for us, but also has the ability, I think, to keep monstrous evil like the CCP in China in check. Now, Afghanistan is not far from China. It borders. Yeah, a very small, China. weird little borders. Yes. Uh, yes. Sort of a, an isthmus of borders. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know what kind of terrain that is either. Is that a river valley that goes through there? You know, it's in it's uh, it's it may be a river valley, but it's it's surrounded by very very mountainous territory. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 not the sort of thing where uh, you know where it's an easy land border where you know China's going to rush in with right. with troops right. into Afghanistan. I read a number of articles about how much uh, mineral wealth that Afghanistan has, and that China may be licking its chops for that. Now, my uh, concern, partly with your discussion of what America needs to do is, is about China and not about Afghanistan. So you did clean it up at the end where you explained that the problem there was we weren't defending a free society. We were basically retaliating against and apparently trying to incapacitate an unfree society that had allied with our attackers. Now that's that makes sense going after them, but we should remember that Afghanistan was gone into by the Bush administration, I think, as a lost leader. They had no interest in Afghanistan. The interest of George Walker Bush was to go to Iraq. And yes, and, and let's say George W. And, and of course, I think Walker is what it is, but uh, what that middle name is. But some people might get, get confused because sometimes they, they talk about uh, George H.W. Bush and, and Walker gets used in that. But, but he... You know, he basically did the same thing in Afghanistan as Iraq, that he went in and, and basically bought the place, you know, uh, didn't buy it, but, uh, but invaded and took it and was going to nation build. And of course, this is right after he runs for president saying no nation building. Right. You know, his critique of foreign policy before that was that we were stupid to be trying to nation build and then did it two places. Very badly. And I think the reason is, is because the 
uh, what's the, the biblical uh, metaphor is that it was barren ground, is that it's not a place that we can nation build. There was only one way to nation build in Afghanistan, and we would never do it because it would be evil by our standards. And that is you kill every male and you bring in people from America and take <laughs> make all the women their wives and ban Islam. That would do it. That would be that would be a success, but no one in America would even contemplate that because it's way beyond our vision of the world. But that's how a conqueror would do it. But we may have done something interesting, though, is that we may have consolidated the power of the Taliban. The Taliban, the, the Afghanistan, the current government that we'd been propping up and so forth, just caved to it, just just let let them in. Uh, was very little fighting from what I understand. The Taliban may now be stronger than it ever would have been had we not attacked them. Because as we know, one of the ways that you can consolidate power in a country is to have an enemy, and they just defeated the biggest enemy in the world. So we may have created a new centralized government in Afghanistan that will work. Not to our liking, but will work. And and they have largely consolidated power throughout the country, which is something they did not have right. when we invaded. They never really controlled the northern region. That's why the Northern Alliance, which was a bunch of warlords who put together a, a, an army, basically, was fighting the, the Taliban. So it's, it's, we, we have done some bad things there. You know, uh, Bush, you know, who said, look, the buck stops here and then blamed everybody else which is the opposite of the buck stopping there. But that's what Biden is doing, and that's what Obama did, and that's what Trump did. So that is an American tradition now, right? Yes, but, but it's, it, it's always funny that it's kind of like to say that it's one thing to just blame everybody and finger point, but it's another thing to say the buck stops here before you start doing it, uh, kind of as a precursor. I want to lie to you, bald face, before I uh, say the next thing. But... Um, there's a figure that I saw in the Washington Post and I'd heard on television uh, of 66,000 Afghans who had died in this 20-year war. Uh, that's soldiers and police. And uh, I heard somebody argue that it was like 50,000 soldiers and the rest, the 16,000 were police. Um, that surprised me. And I try to keep up. And I don't think it's that there were lots of stories in the papers and on TV about the Afghans dying in the field against the Taliban. I think that we just didn't hear about that. And it's, it strikes me as something that we ought to hear about. And, and I was kind of when, when Biden says, oh, they, they you know, just crumpled like a cheap suit. Uh, it's easy to believe that. It, I remember uh, in Iraq. When George Bush was about to go, George W. was about to go to war uh, on TV, they kept saying, well, the Iraqi army is the fourth largest army in the world. And, you know, I just thought, give me a break, you know, just because you've conscripted a bunch of, you know, 16 year olds who have a wooden stick instead of a rifle. That's not a an army. <clears throat> and of course, they folded pretty quickly. And they had, you know, maybe more advanced professionalized units and stuff, but they seem to fall pretty quickly, too. Um, so it's believable, I think, for Americans that that the Afghan army just evaporated in the field and refused to fight. I'm not sure that's the reality. And when you hear that kind of death toll, I mean, there were 2,300 Americans who were killed. Uh it's, it's pretty obvious that somebody was willing to fight. Uh, and, and so I, I think part of the, the problem is the American public doesn't get good information about what's going on. We, we watch on our TV screens of, you know, some Afghan mother handing a baby over to Marines. And, you know, you understand the implications of that and your heart just breaks. <clears throat> but it's it's in a land that we, even though we've been there for two decades, we don't know anything about. And I, uh, years, years ago, years after the end of the Vietnam War, uh, read Stanley Carnow's book, uh, which was a companion to a PBS series about Vietnam. And it seemed like the first 7,500 pages of the book were Vietnamese history. And I remember starting to read it and thinking, oh, this is good because I don't know anything. 
I don't know anything about Vietnamese history. Now, how do you go to war with a country and know nothing about it? Well, you, you do that if you think everything is firepower and we've got better machines. And so we're going to win because we're just going to bomb everything and throw more troops at it and more technology. And, and, and somehow they're primitive peoples that we can just overrun. Well, we find out again and again, they're people like us and they may be more primitive, but somehow our thinking oftentimes seems pretty primitive. <clears throat> and of course, if you know the history of Vietnam, you know that they were constantly invaded. And unlike a lot of places that are constantly invaded, they constantly fought. And so the idea of, of Vietnam throwing out the French and then ultimately throwing out the Americans if you know Vietnamese history is not so crazy, but it was, I think, a shock to us because we don't know anything. And, and we, have to, we have to own that ourselves. But why do we have this huge media apparatus if they don't ever tell us anything? What is the point? They're, they're constantly telling us stuff, but they don't seem to be telling us important stuff that we ought to know. <laughs> and and maybe that is a segue um, because we're going to have more fallout from Afghanistan. I think the, the big picture is that wherever you are on what policy we should have in Afghanistan, this pullout was a mess and shows the kind of just just chutzpah and, and uh, arrogance that is awfully dangerous. Even if you were a superpower, and, a, and I'm convinced there are no superpowers, uh, even if we were, it's the way that even a superpower could screw everything up. So um, that's a huge problem. So when you were talking about a uh, segue, were you talking about talking about another one of your uh, commentaries from this week do we have were, were there five days this week yeah. yes conspirators versus conspiracists and and the idea that we don't get the information we ought to get this is a piece and we won't we won't go into quite as much depth on it but this is a piece about a study that google did detecting conspiracy theories on social media and they looked at four different uh, conspiracy theories. One of them, which tells you all you need to know, was the Wuhan lab leak. See, that was a conspiracy theory. The theory was that somehow this could have leaked from the Wuhan lab. How crazy. And of course, what happened? Well, social media, you know, the, the U.S., government, big government science folks denied it, went, conspired. Little Not that conspiracy. Uh, it was a, a public fraud. That is the case. Yes. What was his name? Dozik? Dozik. Yes. Peter Dozik. And, uh, and it was, it was facilitated by Anthony Fauci. Uh, he was involved. We see the emails. So the, the, it was a conspiracy to close down discussion of a lab leak from Wuhan. And social media, Facebook, announced when it all kind of went south that they were going to stop censoring statements and posts and information about the lab leak. So their study is, is crap. Their study about somehow detecting conspiracy theories, here's the reality. Oftentimes, someone comes up with a conspiracy theory. They think the people have conspired to do this or that. They're wrong. Well, you know what? Sometimes people are wrong, but sometimes they're right. And there was a conspiracy. So this idea that the media can just, and, and I'm talking about the broader, not just the New York Times and the Washington Post, but Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, uh, social media, they can conspire and do and have, and the lab leak is proof positive of it. And, and again, we're not saying, oh, we know for sure it was a lab leak. We believe that it was a lab leak because we you know, just believe things for the heck of it. But there's a lot of evidence, a lot of uh, 
circumstantial evidence, not smoking gun evidence, but circumstantial evidence that it was a lab leak. And, and of course, if we pointed out in other scripts, there's almost no evidence that it came zoonotically from animals. Uh, and, and the whole argument for it coming from animals was that's how others have come. Well, that's not evidence. That's kind of a, hey, if we were to guess, here's a rationale for us guessing this way. And there are scientists who from the beginning said that this virus looked manufactured. Um, I mean, we have to remember this is this was something right from the beginning. I remember in February hearing a major virologists say this is this is not right and now many many of them may have been cranks i don't know i i there's so much about this i don't know but we knew from the beginning also since it came in wuhan and then we discovered almost immediately oh there are one no two virology labs and it turns out one of them had been funded in part a small part by the u.s government i th i think that uh, we should regard it as a possibility that this is worse than you suggest i mean you make a fairly rational case for just a leak i don't think it was a leak i think that if it if it came from the wuhan lab it was is just as likely to have been in some sense planned when people first mentioned like tom cotton senator from arkansas republican said uh this could be a, a lab leak it was immediately he's suggesting this was a bioweapon and he never suggested it I suggest it. Yeah. But but that's the thing. Well, we now know one, we know that Fauci in February from the emails that have been released, we know he was told by a scientist that this looks like a manufactured virus. We also now know that at the Wuhan lab, they set up and people have argued using US funds, using your and my money, they set up a department and area where they were doing where the military controlled it, the PLA, the, the people, People's Liberation Army, which aren't really for the people and don't liberate, but, but they are an army. And so they were doing military research there. So there's, and again, that doesn't mean, okay, we know for sure. We don't. But why do we have to not even think about it? as if China somehow, the same people who are doing a genocide in Xinjiang province and, and, uh, and have clamped down and arrested people for, you know, saying, I like democracy, and they might go to prison for life in Hong Kong, and are threatening to invade Taiwan. Why do we want to like, oh, we would never suggest that they might, you know, have a bioweapon. I think if they had a really good bioweapon, they're the type of regime that would use it. So it's but anyway, it's a very good bioweapon, by the way, if you're trying to kill lots of people, it's a great bioweapon if you're trying to take over people's minds, because if the purpose is psychological and not um, crude, not just kill lots of people, because the right. problem with onion disease, and that's a problem of always has been with with uh, bioweaponry, is that it's very hard to control the disease. And we're finding that out really quite obviously that we can't control the disease very well. Masks don't work in the way we think they work. We have can see no evidence from the graphs of the contagion over time from country to country with mask mandate versus lockdowns. You can't see any pattern to it. That virus is just doing what it's doing. So that means that bioweaponry is dangerous for the country that engages in it, right? So if why would you do it? Oh, what you would want to do, if you're going to do it, is create a low-grade virus that then you can use as a psychological warfare technique to undermine your enemies. And I can't think of anything more undermined than the West right now. I think everybody's heads are completely messed up. They don't know how to deal with the threat. They won't think of it as a threat, just as a menace that's, you know, natural and blah, blah, blah. That's all nonsense because they're not thinking in terms where they might have to be courageous. That's the number one problem with the world from day one is a lack of courage. Uh, lack of integrity is, is maybe the bigger problem, but, but those are really oftentimes tied together. So it's, it's, uh, it, but when you when you step back and and it, it really doesn't matter the specifics of this, what we see is that we don't get good information 
We don't get the truth. And if we want to have a society in which citizens control their government, then the citizens can't be kept in the dark all the time. And that, to me, that's the scariest thing. If you're not upset with Biden, regardless of where you are on this, because what he says doesn't make sense with what he said before. Wait a second, you're not telling us the truth. If you're not upset with Facebook, because they, it's not just that, oh, they censored something I like. If they censor something I don't like, it means I live in a world where I'm not going to hear what people are saying. That's not the world we want. And uh, it's just a, a huge problem. And I'm going to, uh, let's skip over uh, subliminal morality, which were, uh, was Wednesday's script, and we're going to come back to that. Uh, but we ought to talk about the vaccine passports in New York City. And uh, on Thursday, we had seeding science to totalitarians. And this time, we're, we're not talking about Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, we're talking about Bill de Blasio and New York City. And basically, New York City now has a, a vaccine passport. 25% uh, of the city has been told they can't go to any stores. They can't basically live their lives in any way, shape, or form. I don't know how they survive unless their vaccinated neighbors will maybe come feed them scraps of food or something. It's... Um, and, and, you know, people can have different views of whether the, they want to be vaccinated or they don't want to be vaccinated. But this idea that the moment that the government tells you you have to stick some needle in your arm, we're living in a totalitarian-esque society. And, uh, and, and Bill de Blasio uh, always going to, you know, one of the far left folks who's going to talk about uh, what a racist country we are. Well, guess who is disproportionately impacted on this? It's black folks in New York City. Um, and, and we've talked before about how, you know, the, the Trump people and the folks in, you know, the South, people in the South aren't as vaccinated. Uh, and that's Trump country, and it's all these right wingers, and and you know just heaping scorn on them, uh, as if somehow, boy, that's that's a good way to persuade them to, to vaccinate. But never mentioning that black folks, if, if you look on a racial thing, they are the most unvaccinated. Now, part of it is that I think people say, well, I understand why they don't trust the medical community which I, I kind of think, well, have you had a, a second thought about that? Because if Black folks have reason not to trust the medical community, then you and I have reason not to trust the medical community. In other words, if the medical community could do something really bad to Black folks and has, well, then you, you think that they're always, these evildoers are, are never going to hurt you just Black folks? Well, I think that we have reason to be skeptical. Everyone. And, and I think we have reason to say you cannot outlaw people from going to the store. You cannot say that our society is, is run in such a way that if you don't put a shot in your arm, you don't get to go to the store. And, and look, I say this knowing that huge segment of this country may be a majority is so scared about this virus killing everyone, even though it's, its lethality is not quite that, uh, but they're so frightened that they want the government to tell everyone what to do and control everyone in this totalitarian type way. There was a peace and reason, great libertarian outfit, and uh, we often talk about their pieces, almost always lauding them, but not always. And this is a case in which, while their take on this was that these vaccine mandates are not very workable, because that's one of the things they pointed out in the article, is that uh, a lot of places aren't checking. But also, um, you know, they didn't like the, the, you know, big government aspect of it. But they 
did seem to fall right in line with the official science and not address some of the things about other scientists who are saying these mask mandates are of no value. There's a lot of disagreement about whether the masks are really doing much of anything to help. And I think what, what uh, a lot of folks have said is viruses are contagious. They aren't easily stopped. They're very, very tiny. They mutate, they do all kinds of things. Um, it's not as if we have just willy-nilly wiped out viruses all the time. And, and especially uh, a coronavirus like this, this is uh, similar to the, the common cold. Uh, and there's a Z dog who, who's a MD on uh, who I kind of like. I don't agree with him completely, but uh, like him on on Utah, YouTube. Uh, if you if it's uh, Z D O G G, have you seen him? I, I don't think I have. He's 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 pro vaccine, but he's um, he's not. You know, he's kind of said, look, over time, people getting it is a good thing because that's how we get these. It, he says this will be go, become endemic instead of a pandemic and that we ought to be looking for that. And he's talked about like the boosters that everybody probably doesn't need a booster, but some people who are vulnerable may wanna have it. So he's in line with a lot of the pro-vaccine arguments, but has been much just, I think much more common sense and stop panicking. Because look, in any difficult situation, the worst thing to do is panic. And yet it seems like our government and our media, I repeat myself, is urging panic, demanding panic, and embracing panic. They want us panicked. And, and look, people die. And that, that, you know, that's a serious thing. But, you know, people die all the time. We can't just cut off our heads and run around. That's not going to help. So uh, it, it does seem to me that, again, the biggest problem, like, like I've gotten uh, my first shot of uh, Pfizer. I'm supposed to get the second one within a time frame here i'm probably going to do it i want to be able to travel outside the country uh, in a couple months and, and other things but i have to say i told my wife after i got my first shot i thought i'd feel kind of relieved i didn't feel relieved at all and the reason i don't feel relieved at all it's not that i think oh these vaccines are secret drugs or they're going to kill me and but they might and if they were going to or if they were as dangerous as some people have said, would, would I be told? Would the media cover it? No, probably not. So when you live in a society in which you can't trust what you're being told, it gets really scary. And that's, that to me is the biggest problem we have when you start censoring and silencing people, all of a sudden this robust discussion and search for truth becomes somebody, you know, force feeding things that you realize are not all true. And if it were, if everything they said were a lie, it'd be easy. It'd be easy to say, oh, well, they said that, let's do the opposite. But we, we now live in a society in which we're being told truth with lies, and we're not giving our, uh, years ago, there was this book, The Wisdom of Crowds, and how, you know, if everybody can weigh in on something, there's a wealth of information and perspective that we can all benefit from. Once that gets hijacked, and it's all official truth, and what the medical experts say, we're sunk. And that's why I don't feel better getting vaccinated. I feel concerned. I feel like I've taken a step where I don't have good information. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm not walking around all day all nervous uh, because, you know, it's life. What can you do? And because I know people in the medical field, uh, one of the reasons I decided to, to get vaccinated is I had a, a friends who were doctors who said, you know, I think this, uh, this Delta variant is a real concern. Uh, it is, you know, it is something where it's probably going to protect you. But all along, 
I had COVID. Lots of people have had COVID. And I think that, wait, aren't these natural antibodies going to be good? Maybe even better than the vaccine? Maybe not. And it's not as if, I don't feel like I know. And part of it is, I feel like the big science doesn't want that question asked or answered. They just want everyone to take the shot. They just want everyone to shut up and do what they're told. And that tells me I live in a dangerous world. And if anyone was concerned about how dangerous it can get, we're we're just seeing it implemented this these vaccine passports in New York and in California, but uh, in Australia and New Zealand, uh, you know, New Zealand just just uh, just locked down again. They over one, one over case, one case, one case. <laughs> we live in a world of stupid people. Okay, that is that's stupid. That's there's there's nothing to justify that. These people are crazy. And the yes. the the, the yes. person in charge and uh, whatever that woman's name is, I can never remember her name. It's an odd name uh, in New Zealand. Uh, that woman is is as well. I I consider that level of stupidity to be evil. And Australia is engaging in rounding up children. I've seen uh, lots of. This is an amazing thing. What's happening in Australia? There are beatings. Police are beating children. I've seen videos of children being pepper sprayed by police for not wearing their masks correctly. We're living in a totalitarian society down there. I'm not, but it's also a lot of the people are liking it too. They're building concentration camps. They're calling them something else, something very nice and medical, but they're concentration camps. They're building them, and there are lots of support for it. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at that stuff. Did you see all that? I gave you an info dump the other day. Australia oh, okay. is 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 really going down a uh, down a hole that is uh, faster than us. Uh, they're they're heading heading towards totalitarianism faster than America, and Americans should look at it carefully before they decide they want to follow Bill De Blasio and his crazy notion. And by the way, I like your basic take about uh, uh, not getting enough information. I think we have enough information not to take the vaccines, but that's uh, that's because I've read read and listened to a lot of people who are not approved. Well, and and these ones that we link to. Um, people could say they're nuts, but these are very accomplished uh, sure. uh, scientists and researchers and and so on who, uh, you know, it's worth hearing what they say. And again, I'm not I'm not a, a doctor. I'm not I'm not saying, gee, I know I'm saying I want a system in which people aren't shut up. People aren't blocked from saying things. Because that's the only way that people like you and me, and I'm talking to most folks out there, where we don't, we didn't go to med school, we haven't done our own research, we don't have a lab in the basement, um, and and we want better information, we want to hear it all, and and the only way you you kind of feel comfortable that you've reached the truth is that you've been able to look at all the information. So that's that's again and again. The problem this week, uh, earlier in the week, we had a uh, quotation from Jonathan Haidt, who made your point. His point is the easy way to tell which side is wrong. It's the side that shoots its dissidents. If they do that, you can pretty much count on the fact that they are wrong. And he was using uh, uh, shoot dissidents as a metaphor also for basically anyone who tramps on freedom of speech. He says, you know yes. the people who are wrong, but the people who support traveling free speech, who are basically against free speech, who suppress right. dissident opinion. And it's not just shooting dissidents, it's actually preventing them from speaking in public. And that's what these people are doing. We've got two more commentaries. One that is along these same lines, it's called the Lurid Latest. And it's about Ilhan Omar, the uh, Minnesota Democrat congresswoman. And she, there's a, a group there in Minnesota, individual who's done all this uh, research because, of course, she's been accused of um, marrying her brother in order to bring him in as a, as a refugee, immigrant, whatever, through the marriage uh, uh, entry ability. 
And uh, so I don't know if the allegation is that she really married her brother, except on paper. But of course, that's a crime. Um, and so it's not a good thing for Congress people to do or anyone to do. Um, and it's it's obviously fraud if if it was done just for that reason. And it's incest if it wasn't done just for that reason. So uh, but. What strikes me is so funny here, and, and it's a it's it's a it's a lurid tale, and I'm not gonna go into all the details, so you can go to this is commonsense.org and, and look up the lurid latest. Uh, but the individual who uh, uh, Anton Lazaro, uh, who spent thousands of dollars to, to do DNA, they, they ran down a cigarette and a straw from her and from her brother. And they confirm that, you know, 99.999998% uh, likelihood that they are related. Uh, but then he was arrested on, on sex trafficking charges. Uh, hasn't, hasn't yet pled or, or uh, well, he, he says he's, he's innocent, uh, but that case is really not going anywhere. But it shut down his website for a little bit. Uh, anyway, you can, you can read all about it, but the upshot is, it strikes me that this story has always been pretty interesting to me because, you know, if Congress people are, are committing immigration fraud, that's, that's a story. And the media has kind of looked into it, but she's not been helpful and maybe there's no way she could be helpful other than to give a DNA sample. And I could kind of understand why someone doesn't want to give a DNA sample. I have this strong feeling that if she were a Republican, that the media would hound her until I knew more about it. And because she is kind of a communist uh, Democrat, and I don't say that uh, flippantly, that they don't seem to want to look into her. And I don't know if it somehow, would, you know, she's a woman, she's um, a person of color, therefore they don't look into it. And she's, a, you know, I think the key is she's a Democrat. But anyway, um, I want to know a lot more about this case. And that's the reason uh, that I wrote this is, why don't we know more? And again, from medical stuff to foreign policy to just bad behavior potentially of a member of congress and it's like sometimes we're given all this information about stories that we wonder how important is it and other times you want information and it's just crickets um but uh let's let's close out with uh wednesday's commentary sub uh, i wrote subliminal but it's not subliminal, it's subminimal morality. And this is a story about an individual who is mentally challenged uh, and he's working. He's making only $3.40 an hour. And, uh, and the Congress is looking at fixing this problem and how they would fix it is to get rid of the sub minimal minimum wage uh it allows when someone has mental or physical uh disabilities it allows an employer to pay them less and some people can look at this and and have looked at it we had a long discussion a friend of mine who, who sees it the other way uh, who basically said this is exploiting these people, and and well, that's, what, that's what all employment is. You exploit me, and I exploit you. That's what it is. It, what he means is it's bad exploitation. Why? Because they're less skilled. This is taking advantage of people who are disabled, and I have a totally different look at it because. When I was a young man, I did some work with mentally challenged adults, and I found it is one of the reasons I always loved Special Olympics is because I saw what joy it was for them to be able to compete, to be able to do something to show what they could do. 
And many of them worked for a employer uh, that did mass mailings, uh, fairly rote work that they were decent at. Uh, maybe not as good as somebody else who wasn't as challenged, but they were pretty good at it and they could make money at it and it could make them independent in like a real way, not just their parents saying, Oh, you're independent. I bought everything. Here's, you know, cause a lot of them were living with friends, others, not at home. Some of them were still living at home, but they liked being independent and they liked being productive and it mattered everything to them. And it wasn't just, that they got to make money and live because most of them, their parents would have taken care of them as long as they lived um, anyway. Uh, and somebody suggested in, in uh, a comment on this piece that, uh, that well, this is why we need the, the basic income because then they could have the basic income and the minimum wage would be unimportant. But of course that misses the whole point. These people are not asking for someone to just write them a check they want to do, they want to achieve, they want to do all the things that you and I get our self-esteem from. They'd like some self-esteem and they deserve it because they're human beings. And it's like, to me, the idea of shutting this down and making these people more wards of the state or their parents or whatever is criminal. It is evil. It is wrong. It just, we just can't do that to people. And of course, it implicates the whole minimum wage because the whole minimum wage idea is that somehow we have to create this floor because otherwise people will work for money that by the end of the week, they starve to death. Now, we haven't seen the stats on starvation, uh, but it, the truth is, if you, whatever, wherever you set that floor, anyone who is not experienced enough, not talented enough, not able enough to produce at that level is kicked out, is out of the process. And that is a crime against them. Now, I could argue it's a crime against the employer for not being able to make whatever contract with other people they want to make. And it is. But it's not the same. You know, I know people and they're all of well, the employers can afford it or whatever. And so it seems to me it's such a great example to say, here's a case in which we all can recognize this person is not going to produce $15 of value an hour. And so we can mandate that employers pay $15 an hour. But this person gets short shrift, gets kicked out of any productive life. And that is a crime against them and humanity, in my view. And so where do you draw the line? What about the, the kid who, you know, maybe their parents didn't, didn't teach them anything. They went to school. They just got passed along year after year. They go for a job and the person says, ah, this person is not going to be able to do this job. Because I got all these people who I got to pay $15 an hour. And I've got people who, who are worth $15 an hour asking for the job. That person doesn't ever get their, their foot on the first rung of the ladder. And that is devastating. And then, then all of a sudden they're 34 and they, they haven't had any job. They've been on the dole this way or that way. And then they apply and you look at it and you say, well, they've got no work experience. So it's like if they ever want to earn $15 an hour or maybe 30 or 45 or $115 an hour, they got to get the first job. So it's, it's, you know, this, thanks for helping, but please stop. And, uh, and I just think this is a, is a great way to look at it because so many people have these experiences and they know that in these cases, you are not doing anyone a favor by, by setting the price of their labor higher than they can maintain. And I, I ask people who understand that, look at the bigger picture and realize that maybe someone who's not, not so mentally challenged or, or physically challenged or anything else, but just isn't at a place to make that minimum level, you are screwing them up too. And, and once you realize that, then 
you know, let's look at something else. I'm convinced people are not going to work at a job that pays them $3 an hour if they can get another job over here for $15 an hour. So I'm not so worried about, you know, some people have this idea that if we didn't have any minimum wage, that half the country would be working for three cents an hour and living, you know, in, in hovels somewhere. Uh, now we have the people living in the woods, but that's usually because we have so fixed and perfected housing regulations that they can't afford to live anywhere. That's, that's the favor we're doing those people. Anyway, maybe we should talk more about this because it's, it's uh, all this help is, uh, is sure hurting a lot of people. Well, the basic idea that people get paid something close to their marginal product, that is what they contribute to the enterprise, is something many people have a hard time grasping. They don't believe it is true. I mean, I just, I think they don't believe it. They believe that people get paid what they can get away with, right? What the, you know, what everybody, and so they think everything's about what you can get away with. And that's their paranoid view of the world. And I don't think the paranoid view of the world applies in this case. Um, I'm amazed that you, that anyone can employ not very bright people to uh, do mailings. Uh, it was a story you mentioned that when your friends employed disabled people or is somebody some people like that because i i was in charge of a troop of really bright people that we had to do mailings quite often and i could almost get no one to do it fast it was like it was like trying to speed up molasses and i can lay i can take a label and, and put it off with one hand and onto the and onto the uh envelope really fast i could go through I usually, well, I don't know if I was double the speed of my interns, but I tell you, it was not easy getting smart people to do that kind of work. So maybe that's... No, <laughs> it's so funny you say that because I have done so many mailings in my life and I am fast. I am learn. you know, it's like, and I'm constantly, oh no, if I do it this way, if I put this piece in here, I can do it that much faster. And, and other folks who are, they're talking and they're, and you'll go, well, if you, you'll do it faster this way. And then, oh yeah. And they're, they're having a conversation and, and I can talk and stuff the mail and fold it and put the stamp on and so on. Uh, but there's a little bit of an argument, I think, that these folks at 340 an hour may be better than the smart people at 15 an hour. Uh, so yes, there's, uh, there might be cases like that because maybe they're too, some of my interns were too smart for, for my own good. Well, they, you didn't crack the whip enough, but you know, yeah. sometimes it's tough to, to, uh, crack the whip on smart people to do the mailing faster because then you feel like they may not be as nice when they're doing more complex things later. And you're asking them to write that piece really quickly. And they kind of, well, I don't know if I'm going to go so fast since you were cracking the whip a few minutes ago. Well, I was complaining about interns, especially because they they, they got paid almost nothing. So they were almost off the rages of the sub minimals. Uh. Well, that's true. That's true. And isn't it interesting that so many places, nonprofits uh, uh, and, and I think other places where people take an internship, which I think is productive for them. It's a good deal for them if they can afford to do it. But these people who have all these interns not getting paid much are, are complaining about Walmart, which is paying more, or somebody else who is, wants the minimum wage, you know, someone who's running a restaurant and labor costs are a huge part of their expense. And, uh, you know, they don't seem to appreciate that sometimes, you know, that, that's more important. And yet then they take advantage and have people who are making sub-minimum because the law is written that way. Um, the, the best thing would be to get rid of all of it. Um, and, and when you have, it's like when, when they complain about people, you know, Walmart not paying enough. And I'm thinking, well, rather than complain, why don't you just go to Walmart and tell the people exactly where they can get a better job? Because my experience in the Walmarts around me is that sometimes you think, well, the folks at Walmart are a little, little rough, and then you, and then you point out, I'm not talking about the customers, I'm talking about the employees, and you know, it is when people find ways to put us to work, that is, that's good as long as we have the freedom to say no. They're doing us a heck of a favor because they're offering us something. 
and we can say yes or we can say no. And and you know, I've worked these different jobs. I uh, I picked tobacco uh, for one day, uh, and then decided, you know what, I can find a better job than this. After one day, I remember sitting in the tub the next morning, just as sore as I could be, thinking, you know what, I think I could just go door to door to businesses in town and find a job, and I did. So that concludes another episode of This Week in Common Sense starring Paul Jacob. I thank you for showing up. And if you really want to help us out, you can do things like click like, uh, share with friends, uh, go to the SoundCloud page, go to thisiscommonsense.org. You know, there's all sorts of things you can do to make sure that you hear us again and that others hear us for the first time. Thank you. Thank you.